And welcome to Friday in D.C. Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, News Director for Farm Journal, joined as always by Jim Wiesmeyer from Pro Farmer. And a special guest this week, he was Paul Bleiberg, who is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations for National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, we wanted to have you along because uh, you've got some special insights for us on this immigration package being put forward by the Biden administration. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But uh, for those who are listening to the podcast, we would encourage you to join us live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central on the AgriTalk Facebook page so you can be a part of the conversation. And if you are watching on the Facebook page, drop us a comment in the comment section or give us a question and we'll address it as we go along here. Uh, let's dive right into this immigration package, Jim, before we get into some of the dairy-specific provisions and concerns. Um, Jim, give us kind of an overview of what the, the Biden administration put out there this week. Well, uh, the House introduced their package, and I think we're going to have the Senate counterpart next week, uh, 353 pages in the uh, on, on the House Democrat package. I think this is an opening salvo. It'll be curious to see what Paul says. I think negotiations are going to have to ha happen. Proposed changes include that eight-year you know, path to citizenship for most of the 11 million immigrants living uh, illegally in the in the U.S. or undocumented, uh, you know, as the case may be. It makes migrant farm workers eligible for the streamlined process if they worked a designated number of hours or workdays in the ag sector you know, during the preceding you know, five-year period. And in essence, it eliminates an exemption for farms from federal overtime and minimum wage requirements in current law, but family members would continue to be exempt. But I think the big one for agriculture is what's not in it. There's no expansion in the H-2A program in the bill's language. Now, that can always be a negotiated item in the uh, in in the talks to come but those are primarily the nuggets at as it would affect the ag sector but of course i want the uh, uh you know far more you know expert on this one you know paul to comment as well yeah before we turn to paul i mean this obviously invites that that word that always seems to kill these programs and that's amnesty does that kill this proposal i don't think it depends on security uh, the, you know, border security, they didn't really put much in other than some virtual funding. But I think that's the key, uh, you know, for the future to get enough votes. If they don't, I don't think this thing is going to go. When you mention comprehensive in this town, that also would lower the odds. I <laughs> hope for once in a while, we're going to piecemeal this thing. And I know, I think Paul would agree, if we could carve out some of this ag stuff, that I think there's bipartisan agreement on a lot of stuff in and in, in, in ag uh i think this is how you're going to get immigration and labor reform but if you want to have a comprehensive thing that's where this thing has fallen down in the past well paul what is your reaction to this this is something that could have big in, uh, impact on the dairy industry uh so so what is your reaction to what you've seen so far but i'd start by agreeing with jim's comment it is really i think an opening salvo to the immigration debate this year. And it's already been taking place somewhat, but there's been a discussion going on in Congress that I expect to continue for the next few weeks uh, with regard to the question about should a comprehensive bill move forward or should a piecemeal approach be taken? The answer may ultimately be some uh, version of both. You know, As it relates to our needs in the dairy industry, we've long prioritized two solutions, one being 
an adjustment of status to provide a permanent legal status to our you know, current farm workers and their families, who are obviously very important to the communities that they're in, as well as an expansion of the H-2A guest worker program in a way that would allow dairy and other year-round sectors to actually be able to use the program. Obviously, right now, unlike many of our ag counterparts, we're locked out of the program entirely, practically. So both of those two <clears throat> priorities need to be included in ag labor legislation that moves forward. Now, we made good progress uh, two years ago at the end of 2019 when the House moved a bill that was called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, and that was a bipartisan bill authored by Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren from California, who chairs the Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration, and Congressman Dan Newhouse from Washington, who has a very big ag district, including a lot of dairy production. And they moved that bill forward in December of 2019. We had begun discussions in the Senate uh, early last year, but unfortunately the pandemic took hold and that stopped most other legislation from being completed aside from COVID response packages and sort of government funding and things like that. So now I think we see ourselves in a place where we have a new opportunity to in some ways pick up where we left off. And so I, I do think that the package put out uh, yesterday in the House and that's coming next week in the Senate is somewhat of a broader marker bill. You know, it does have the provisions, as Jim noted, around uh, legal status for current workers. It does not include provisions that we need to have on guest worker reform. I think we're glad that there's a marker being put out there, but I think our short-term priority is to try to pick up where we left off and get the Farm Workforce Modernization Act passed through the House again. Now, there are some quirks of House rules that allow in the first couple of months of a new Congress the House to take up bills that had been passed in the previous Congress and move them through very quickly without having to go through the committee process all over again. And so we are hopeful that in the next month or so before that time period expires, the House votes on the Farm Workforce Modernization Act and sends it to the Senate once again. There is discussion right now in the House about doing just that, about moving that bill, as well as some other piecemeal bills, including a bill dealing with the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that the Obama administration created. This has long been uh, kind of the linchpin of the immigration conversations on Capitol Hill. I think the closest we've come in the last five years or so to seeing an immigration package that, that could get anywhere close to the president's desk was in early 2018. There were some discussions in the Senate on a bipartisan basis to move a DACA proposal. And none of those proposals were able to get enough votes, unfortunately. But then the House passed a DACA bill in 2019. I think we expect that if they were to move the farm workforce measure, they would move DACA legislation as well as a standalone bill. And I think what's important to us there is if you send a number of bills over to the Senate in piecemeal form, and they have some degree of bipartisan support, uh, you send a signal to senators about what may be the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, in this debate. As it relates to DACA, Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, and Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina on the Republican side, who previously chaired the committee, have put forward their own marker on that issue. And we understand that they want to move forward with that. And, you know, in D.C., there's always a, a train leaving the station on any given issue. And I think our hope may be that if that bill is beginning to move and get some legs in the Senate, if we can get the Farm Workforce Modernization Act out of the House and over to the Senate, we can work to maybe make some improvements to that bill and get it attached to something that's moving in the Senate. I think that DACA piece out there is really, really key to our ability to get something done. Now, that's not to say that the House won't vote on the U.S. Citizenship Act at some point or that the Senate won't have a, a version of that as well. It's unlikely to me that that bill would get the 60 votes in the Senate needed to become law. 
and get signed, you know, be signed by the president. And so I do look at it as more of a marker bill. They may be, may pull other parts out of that bill. It's a very large bill and move some of those piecemeal as well. We'll, we'll kind of see what happens. But I think we're viewing it as it's an opening salvo of sorts. It's, it's a start to the discussion. And that's why we issued a statement yesterday, obviously drawing attention to that, but also calling attention to the needs that dairy has that have to be fulfilled in, in any measure. And while the Farm Workforce Modernization Act is not perfect um, in the form that it's in right now, it's certainly a very good starting point and that it embodies the two major priorities we have. If we can make some improvements to it and get that across the finish line in some form. That would really be our priority. And I get what you both are saying about the piecemeal approach on this. That certainly would be advantageous to agriculture, but you've got a lot of progressive priorities in the overall immigration package that I think they're going to want to attach to what they see as a more sure thing as some of the ag uh, priorities. So doesn't that really complicate it for agriculture and that you're going to see some other non-related things attached? It, it could, but I would say that a lot of the progressive members also very much want to see a DACA fix get done as well. To your point, they may want to see other things done too, but there, there does seem to be a sense developing that it's time to get done whatever can get done on this issue because so many immigration issues have languished for a very long period of time now that while there, there may be some internal tensions there to be worked out and part of working out that tension may be letting the House have a full vote on the broader bill that was introduced yesterday. I think it would really be the first time in quite a while that something like that in that broader scope is voted on in the House. I do think there's a sense among many of the progressive members that they want to try to bite off what's doable as well. And, you know, Zoe Lofgren, who's the lead sponsor, who's been the lead sponsor of the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, you know, she carries a lot of credibility, uh, not only with House Democrats on issues related to immigration, but also with Republicans, frankly, because a lot of the ag district Republicans like Dan Newhouse negotiated with her on this bill two years ago and found her to be a trustworthy partner and she found trust in them. And I think her uh, blessing on moving some in, some individual bills through will be critical. So, you know, she's not reintroduced the Farm Workforce Modernization yet, but if she does move forward with standalone bills, I do think that kind of in this conversation about talking about a broader bill, there will be support to do that. Uh, we're getting a couple comments in. I'm not going to read through them all, but Eric, our producer, if you would throw them up on screen just so uh, everybody can see them there. But the, the basic gist is, uh, you know, following along that uh, they are illegal immigrants or, or folks have not followed the rules of the system so far. So why should we be changing the system to uh, to make allowances for them? Um, Paul, I'll let you take that on first. So I suppose as it relates to the to the uh, DACA issue, you know, that tends to deal with people that have been here since they were very, very young, right? And, right. So there, there and it wasn't some, their choice to come here, yeah. It's sort of something that you know, their, their families might have done. And so the question is, you know, do, do you send people out of the country that this is the only home that they know and they what happened to them happened through no decision of, of their making, as you point out. So, you know, I think that's why there is a certain degree of broad bipartisan interest in, in fixing that problem. There's not total agreement on the details of how you fix that. Uh, but certainly Senator Durbin and Senator Graham have a bill. There's a bill in the House that was passed in 2019. I believe it was called the Dream and Promise Act. We need to double check. And I think some of that may have been folded into the U.S. Citizenship Act. That's why the, you know, there, there are a fair number on the Republican side as well as the Democratic side that want to see that issue dealt with uh, just because of the impact it has on a lot of different communities. And I think you know, that may be the lowest of the low hanging fruit to deal with that issue. I think our hope is if we can get a strong enough bipartisan vote on the ag bill, uh, we can help position that as maybe among the lower hanging fruit, if you will, to be to be attached or to move in some kind of a similar form. 
I find it interesting, Paul, that in this discussion, you haven't brought up yet the uh, the ag exemption for the overtime that's included in the Biden plan. Yeah, I haven't brought that up because, it, you know, that's not part of the it's part of the Biden bill that was put out yesterday. It's not part of the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. And because we went through a pretty careful process in 2019 to negotiate out that bill and there was give and take on, on our end, there was on the farm uh Workforce and as well, the kind of all sides there were engaged. The United Farm Workers were very active in those discussions. I think there's going to be a viewpoint that you know compromise is needed here, and you know I think you have broad interest among agricultural district members in guest worker reform, dealing with H2A, and in the providing legal status to current workers and their families. And I think that's going to be viewed as a major win. That you know I would imagine those those overtime provisions, while they are in that that larger package, I don't see them having a, a ton of legs in a kind of standalone ag bill or even in an ag bill that would be added to maybe a not a comprehensive package, but maybe a smaller ball package that might be centered on DACA and include a few other things. So I certainly take the point on the concern, but I, I don't know that I expect that to move forward. And this could be part of the Democrat strategy, knowing full well, as Paul said, that you, you, to get anything done, it's going to have to be some compromises. So this could be uh, you know, one avenue for, okay, we'll give you this. And maybe, Paul, was this why they didn't include H2A? Because that was a big ask by the ag community. And you know, what odds do you see that eventually coming in? Because that's really needed in ag. And, and I, I see good odds on that being in the in the conversation here because there are a lot of members in both parties that are going to want to see that included. And so I think as the negotiation process plays out on legislation that can get 60 votes in the Senate and get a vote and pass the House, that's going to have to be in the mix. It certainly has to be in for dairy, given that we don't even have access to the current H-2A. But the other sectors that we work with as well in this uh, in the ag sector, they want to see improvements to the program, too. So I, I think it's an, an imperative that it will be in there uh, if anything's going to become law. I know one of the questions down below was the open border in this. It gets into the sensitive area. I think Paul mentioned in the last time the Senate, I think, got 60 eight votes for that you know compromise bill and that was really as a result of very late putting a lot of funding uh virtual and otherwise into it and that's going to be the area to watch because you're not going to get a major bill through without additional funding and not just for virtual uh you know, border protection. But uh, I think it's going to boil down to the leadership in both political parties, because where it's fallen down before is, I think, regretfully, too many of the leaders wanted an issue and not a bill. And this is why if ag can be carved out, the votes are, are going to be there, but you have to fight the, some leadership, both political parties, to say, hey, we want your votes for this other bill that's going to come in after ag you know potentially and you know those are the dynamics john right paul i agree with that and i think there's a lot of uh, a lot of merit in pointing to that debate in 2013 on the border security funding because i would imagine that that could enter into these discussions here even on a daca bill you know the legislation that passed in uh, in 2013 embodied that and in 2018 the negotiations between you know Republicans and Democrats at the time, it was sort of a DACA and border trade-off of sorts. And there were yes. quite a few proposals that had bipartisan support that dealt with DACA and that dealt with some semblance of border security. Now, I'm not sure of all the details on each item in the House or the Senate packages and those issues, but I would imagine a similar discussion to play out here as part of that process of securing the needed votes. 
And Jim, this is a pretty big statement for the Biden administration that this is the second big package they're coming out with right, only after COVID aid. Yes, and you're going to see more infrastructure. I mean, they're they're going bold and they're going fast because, you know, I know that they probably in the White House more than the Hill, he has two years because the at least the odds, I'm not predicting, the odds of the House flipping over to the Republicans are at least over 50% right now, but it's it's early. So you better have your game plan going for the next two years, John. That's why you're going to see uh, uh, you know, a big tax bill later this year. You're going to see infrastructure bill, I think, within the first six months. I think, uh, uh, you know, a number of key lawmakers want a bill uh, in May uh, sometime. So, yeah, you know, you, you know, these things are going to come fast and furious. All right. Well, Paul, I know you need to get going uh, to another appointment. But before we let you go, uh, how are you and the National Milk Producer is going to be moving forward on this issue and, and pushing for that uh, expansion of H2A and other priorities? Sure. So like I said earlier, I think we're working with members in the House right now in both parties to try to move the Farm Workforce Modernization Act forward as quickly as possible. We're also beginning bipartisan discussions in the Senate for when and if that happens, teeing up a process there. So I think our hope is that we see some movement very, very soon on the ag labor issue specifically and then have good news to report back. Defined very, very soon. <laughs> Maybe over the next month, given the mid-March uh threshold that the House rules require around being able to vote on bills uh, from the last Congress to do so quickly. So they, you know, it may be as soon as a month from now where the House would have to repass bills from 2019 or 2020 under the expedited process. That expedited, you know, process kind of runs out. They lose that authority sometime in March. I forget the exact date. So they've only got a certain amount of time to do that. So I think we're hopeful that they use these next few weeks here to take advantage of that. And that can give us the time we need to work in the Senate. And I would say that, you know, you know, that fits the definition very, very soon. Uh, from yeah, Especially in Washington. Yeah. In, in DC speak, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's like Indeed. a torrid face. <laughs> okay. All right, Jim, anything else before we let Paul go? I just want to thank you, Paul. You were succinct. You know the issue. You know this issue. And I, uh, th there was all signals there. And, and you know, I, I, I like that. So I compliment you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Sure. All right. Thanks. That's Paul Byberg, right, who is with the National Milk Producers Federation. Some, like you said, Jim, great insight there Absolutely. On, on the immigration. Well, uh, he's been through the battles before, so yeah. he knows. And this is why I like people like him. They know what can happen for the plus side, and they know the back alleys, and they know what can go awry. And I think you just heard it in a very succinct you know, signaling format. Yeah, and again, I'm really surprised that, that I wasn't hearing really much of any concern about that uh, overtime exemption because I've been hearing it from other places that they're yes. concerned about it. He doesn't seem to think that that's going to be an issue. So that's that, a gimme for I think it's the Democratic strategy, you know, that, you know, you're going to have to compromise. And that should be hopefully one of the areas. Yeah. But, you know, ag has learned unless you cry foul, you know, some of these things can get in. So it is something to at least bring up uh, on that. And I thought, what, his comments on dairy, they don't even qualify for H-2A now, so they want to be inclusive 
on that one. So if you can get those two things, and and I know it's a sensitive as we had the you know you know the caller uh, you know come in on the DACA, but there's I think if you if you polled the bipartisanship, there's support for they used to be children, but they're now uh, adults right now relative to the DACA. So, but when you go into the other one, a pathway to citizenship for clearly illegal. Uh, uh, you know, immigrants, uh, you better get something for that. And and the, those are going to be the most icy issues and that usually gets into border security. And that's where right. in the past it's fallen down. Yeah, indeed. And that's always going to be a tough issue to negotiate and it's going to end up holding up other issues yes. uh, around it. So it'll be, uh, that'll be the, the issue to watch and to see if they can thread the needle sure. there. Um, because, you know, as we've seen every other time, as I mentioned at the top, um, anytime you you go down that road, there are Republican cries of amnesty, right or wrong. That seems to be what what holds up um, any sort of comprehensive immigration reform. Or well, has they the they remember the last time we had major comprehensive immigration reform was in the Reagan administration. And he yes, I was in high his, school, so I don't remember it all. He that told well. his Republican Party this time only. This time yeah. only. And uh, senators like Chuck Grassley and myself, who remember those days, this is what you bring to it, that they didn't follow through on the border security side. They did on the amnesty side. So this is why that is so important on, on, on this one. And it, it, could, it could dethrone, but that's why we kept on saying there's wide bipartisanship on the ag many of the agricultural provisions but but the complexity comes in is when leadership who wants comprehensive reform says you know maybe we won't get the ag votes if we pass if we carve out the ag labor provisions separately so that's called a dilemma yeah well and you also need to make sure that there is a clear path to citizenship or getting a green card in the U.S. It's been difficult in the past, which is what has led to the uh, large numbers of illegal boarding cross, illegal border crossing. So um, making sure that there is a process to screen people coming through and that there is an orderly process for people to cross the border um, also goes to that issue of border security um, because it, it de-incentivizes crossing the border illegally. Yes, and nobody should jump ahead of those individuals who've gone properly through right. the procedures. I think that's very important there. This administration likes to talk about equity. Well, there's equity right there. They should be equitable for all those you know individuals who went through the process but waited for all these years, filed the paperwork, waiting, wait, paid their back taxes, you know, whatever. So, you know, you know, that's going to be a litmus test for equity. And indeed. All right, let's get to some other issues here. Let's, let's turn Jim to the uh, USDA Ag Outlook Forum this week. Um, the headline out of that, of course, is a big acreage for both corn and soybeans expected in 2021, as always is the caveat, if Mother Nature cooperates. Yes. Uh, but the, the, the price is there, the acreage is there because of some uh, significant prevent plant numbers in previous years that we could see both corn and soybeans well over 90 million acres in 2021. Yes. If anything, USDA could be too low on acreage uh, from, based on industry people. Uh, a, a lot of the trade thinks uh, soybeans could be up seven to nine 
you know, million acres and uh, say one to two million for corn. So uh, again, it depends on, on the weather. My bottom line on the Ag Outlook, the first vir totally virtual one, that I, I thought they, you know, I, I thought they did a good job because it's hard to do that. It, it was C three C's, climate change, COVID, and China. And, and they, yeah. they went through almost every presentation you know, one of those topics, but for sure, climate change. I mean, this this is pervasive in this town right now. You name the issue and somebody's going to bring up, you know, climate change. And of course, COVID, you know, depends on the ag economy, the overall U.S. economy. And uh, China, you have to mention China from a market outlook perspective, as as Seth Meyer did, who I, I thought Seth Meyer as the new you know, chief USDA economist did a very good job. Uh, he shows that an economist can actually speak in English. You know, <laughs> he had good charts. I mean, and so I, I've known, you know, Seth and he, he did a bang up job. And but if the importance of China on the overall uh, uh, record forecast for U.S. trade, uh, a big boost in the uh, trade surplus uh, that we haven't seen for you know several years. So those Indeed, were the yeah. three C's, uh, you know, John. And we can we can quibble on the uh, um, on the S and D's as as the trade should should. But the bottom line is, although we know a lot can change, the ending stocks projections that USDA had for the major crops. They signaled that there's little margin for air on the supply side. So that's yeah. why you're going to have extreme market you know, volatility depending on the weather outlook, John. Yeah, uh, which, which again, um, buffered some of the impact of these numbers from USDA because those supplies are so low. We are going to need that acreage if we're going to deliver what USDA is anticipating uh, and what China has uh, pledge to purchase from the United States. So, you know, while there was a little bit of a downturn in the markets, it wasn't significant. And we're still, you know, well above, I think, where everyone expected us to be even just a couple of months ago. Um, a lot to unpack in what you just said, Jim, and I want to hit on a couple of things. One, first of all, you're absolutely right about Seth Meyer. It's nice to have um, a, a, a true communicator in that role. And I think we're going to see even more benefits of that uh, as we go down the roads. Yeah. Seth has been talking to the Farm Journal team quite a bit as he's gone into that role and talking about uh, how we can work together to to uh, communicate what comes out of that uh, USDA uh, Office of the Chief Economy. We're going to see some goods with, with there in, in, and at a time when USDA and NAS and the Office of the Chief Economist really need that good communication skill. Yes. Yeah, and he's he's got a radio voice, as you know, so that's yeah. always good. And he's conversational in tone, so you feel like he's talking with you. And yes. so th those are all pluses. He's got great communication skills, and I know uh, he knows how to do charts. So, yeah, I just think he's the right person at the right time to regroup at USDA in a number of areas. All right, let's turn to the climate C in what you talked about. And... Uh, I'm going to say a name that we've mentioned a couple times on here, and I think that this is probably the most important name to watch at USDA, at least over the next year. That's Robert Bonney. And and he spoke at Outlook, at the Ag Outlook conference, um, and 
gave a, a couple of hints that I don't think have been talked about enough. But but first, we're, we, we've had all this conversation about carbon, about climate, and it kind of feels to me, Jim, like that, that Amazon box has arrived and it's sitting on your table, but you have no idea what's inside of it. Yes, that, that's and you're good, just trying to figure that's out a good what's way there. To put it. Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. And because what, there's buzzwords, as, as I've written, there's buzzwords, resilience, uh, equity, uh, legacy, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things, you know, uh, you know, sustainability, carbon credit bank. Now, we need to define those. Now, the House Ag Committee, they rescheduled it. It's going to be rather than Tuesday, it's going to be Thursday. They're going to hold what they call their hybrid hearing on the topic but i'll tell you so maybe i mean we'll it's going to be half gas half electric or <laughs> all of the above is what i've learned too i know that works just ask taxes but uh but i've never seen in this town i'll give it to the biden administration on this i've never seen such a whole of government approach to an issue ever as this one it's almost like a war mentality john not just USDA, not just EPA, but you've got the federal, uh, the Treasury Secretary, former Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen, mentioning it. You have individual yeah. Fed governors talking about it. So the focus is there, and I think that is other than COVID, that's the number one issue in this administration. Period. So it's going to get high interest. So and Robert, you're Robert. Yeah, he was an interesting one because if you didn't know that he wasn't the USDA secretary designate, you would have thought, is is he going to be ag secretary? That's what I first thought of when I was listening to them, him. So that's uh, he's he's somebody to watch. I think he knows his stuff. He's uh, quite aggressive. And uh, he, he's going to help uh, Vilsack lead the charge. Yeah, he is. And he gave us a couple of clues on not necessarily what's in that box sitting on our kitchen table, but one we can peek inside. And one is he said they've got 30 days to get feedback from the industry. So they're, they're going to be reaching out here pretty soon and pretty aggressively, I would imagine, to hear from various farm groups about what that climate smart agriculture, what it looks like. Um, and then they've got what seventy days to report around back to the seventy-five. White House? Yeah, around seventy-five yeah. days. And there's your timeline. That that tells you they are on an aggressive path. And what people also need to know is President Biden has indicated uh, through Vilsack and Vilsack as well, they want to put the U.S. farmers as one of the principal examples of where we're going on this carbon mm. neutral to carbon free approach. And I think that opens up some at least opportunities until we know the details. So, uh, and then you have a UN summit on climate coming up that I think the US is gonna host and it's big for Biden. So that's why they're hitting the ground more than running. They're flying on this one, John. Indeed, and, and two more little clues from Robert Bonney in his speech. Um, I've heard him say similar things elsewhere um, that give us a little bit more idea of the shape of this, even though we don't know what it's going to be. One is, um, uh, now now the thought escaped me. One, well, one of, oh, I don't remember what it was. One is they don't see this as one tool. They see this as a suite of tools. Um, so that there are going to be various options 
for farmers to use to take advantage uh, of addressing climate. Um, and the other is that they don't see this as a static set, that they see uh, coming back continually to agriculture to ask, um, you know, how are these tools working? How do they need to be adjusted? Do we need new tools? Uh, those kind of things. So um, those are a couple of the clues that Robert Bonney gave about his thinking, at least, of how this moves forward. Well, they know they've learned some lessons in the Obama administration of what works and what doesn't work. Remember, Gina McCarthy, as EPA administrator, did the stick more than the carrot. And on AgriTalk, we had Sean Haney on, and Canada is a little ahead of us relative to at least their strategy on this one. And he said, watch out for the stick. Uh, you know, on this one, if if I'm following the signals right, they know that the ag sector, many of them, are very cautious about this. They're, they're wanting, mm -hmm. They want to see the proof of the carrots, you know, and will it be voluntary as opposed to mandatory? What are the tools in that arsenal? But I think they're smart in saying, basically, they're saying, we're going to be flexible. This won't be a rigid system. So uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, has interestingly asked Gina McCarthy, who now is the domestic energy czar. She is the coordinator of climate change through the different uh, you know, departments and agencies, including USDA. I think that was very smart, as he usually is, Grassley, to try to get Gina McCarthy out to, to Iowa to hear uh, mm -hmm. some of the grassroots uh, concerns and opportunities out there herself, John. Well, and and maybe try to uh, heal some of the wounds between Gina McCarthy and the ethanol industry, because uh, there, there are still some some lingering resentments there. Yeah, yeah they're, they're deep. So I think they're mm -hmm. going to need more than a Band-Aid. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, well, they, yeah, if we can get them together and start talking, maybe there'll be some some better understanding um, uh, of some of the issues there as they move forward. Um, the, the overall message I got out of, um, the, the Ag Outlook uh, forum from USDA was that look for more stability in 2021, at least, um, until mother nature decides otherwise. That, and you know, I, I got a call from a, I can't say who, but a former, um, let's say analyst at the world board. Okay. He was surprised on quote in the grains area, how bullish USDA's price forecast were. I thought really? that was interesting when my ear heard, heard that one. Yeah. And uh, of course, yeah, I think for more stability, they, that was a signal on the trade policy arena that they're not going to leave hands off, but you won't have this tweet of a day uh, relative to the China. Of course, phase one was discussed and things like that. But China, as we've said on this program many times, uh, they're not doing anything just for, for the purposes of phase one. They need the corn. They need the soybeans. They need the meats, etc. So uh, I think you're going to see a far more stable uh, once the market sees that China's corn demand is just not a one year blip. I think that's going to put stability under that under that corn, you know, marketplace, John. Well, and and Tyne Morgan of U.S. Farm Report had uh, a story this week. You can find it on AgWeb.com that even with current prices on corn, U.S. corn still has a three dollar a bushel advantage over China's domestic corn supply. 
Yes, and Seth Meyer pointed that out as well. That's why they'll, you know, that's why they'll continue to buy. And the more China buys corn and USDA announces officially those sales, that that uh, uh, has other buyers coming in because they don't want to trace this uh, market uh, high to, you know, very much higher. You can see it in the RIN prices for the. Uh, 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 RFS program uh, in, in in the biofuel program, uh, etc. Before I forget, we can come back to the Ag Outlook if you want. The, the Renewable Fuels Association president Jeff Cooper had an excellent, uh, you know, commentary on uh, the the role of ethanol. He sees ethanol playing a big role in the push for carbon free. Whenever right. anybody says, "Mark my words," I just I just shoot up and want to get the recorder going. He said, mark my words, zero carbon corn ethanol is coming. In fact, he thinks corn ethanol could be, quote, carbon neutral or even carbon negative. So the signal there, climate change is at least a major opportunity at the best time for corn-based ethanol as they transition to a changing renewable fuel standard program could not have come at a better time if they're allowed that opportunity john well that's what i was just going to point out if they're allowed to continue internal combustion engines uh, which is a, a key question right now and yeah in fact um the ethanol industry is looking at a uh industry-wide carbon capture uh program for ethanol plants so uh, they are going at this very very aggressively absolutely uh, yeah well, and let's let's stay on the ethanol topic. Uh, there was some new legislation uh, being put forward uh, today. As a matter of fact, the RFS Integrity Act. What do you know about this one, Jim? I know I, that you hit me with that one, so uh, you know you're going to have to summarize it for me. But I'll comment <laughs> on it. They probably well, want announcements on what the levels are going to be for the mandated volumes and to stick with it. And they probably want consistency under uh, rules under small refinery exemptions i mean if i followed it over the last few years yeah and the the release did not have a whole lot of uh detail on it um it's being sponsored by uh, dusty johnson of south dakota and angie craig of minnesota uh just saying it's bringing more uh, transparency with the small refinery exemption program which of course has been uh, a, a big sticking point for the ethanol industry versus the oil industry. Um, but the, the release does not give a whole lot of detail of, of what they, what kind of transparency they're sinking. So I'd hope I was hoping you'd have some more details than I did, Jim. So I guess we'll have to do some homework this week. Well, I, yeah, we will. But I just think that they, they just want to see the program announced. We, we still don't know what the 2021 biofuel obligations are going to be in 2022 biodiesel. And to be blunt, the Trump people punted that off to the Biden people. And this is another one where, and this might bridge us into the other one, you've got the EPA administrator new, Michael Regan, and Vilsack will be confirmed uh, next week in the Senate. And he's probably just so anxious to get going because he's going to be an important element relative to the RFS because USDA works with EPA and the Energy Department. So a lot of things could be coming together once we have these players uh, involved together, we are you know, working together. And of course, with Vilsack, he'll play a big role in these paused, uh, you know, CFAP programs, John. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, no action this week as the Senate was out. Um, you know, we thought that they that those two confirmations would happen as soon as the Senate cleared the uh, the Trump impeachment trial, um, which it, essentially they are doing. It's just they were uh, in recess this week, so next week is the first chance that they have to uh, bring those to the Senate floor. Um, as you noted, Jim, no, we're not expected to have any troubles for either one of those nominations when they hit the floor next week, right? No, no. And there, I think that what's on the, at least the agenda is only a 20 you know, minute debate on the Senate floor on Vilsack. He, he's in and he's needed now because they're starting to announce some of the undersecretaries, the FSA administrator, uh, very, uh, they're expanding their, their fold on that, which I think is a good, is a, is a good development. Uh, you wonder who's making those decisions, whether it's Vilsack or he's been told who some of these undersecretaries are going to be. I need to do some more research on that. But I was told that the reason we haven't had any announcements on that, remember the December 21st when Congress approved that $15 you know, billion dollar uh, you know, uh, you know, CFAP, uh, you know, payments, the, uh, you know, $20 an acre, uh, one, and, and also at the tail end of the Trump administration, the up to $2.3 billion that they found additional funding, uh, they put them on hold, which any incoming administration does. Uh, Vilsack, once Vilsack, I think he wants to put his signature on those, which would signal to me that there could be some changes in both of those programs from what was previously announced, John. So you think that we are going to see changes in those? I think some, not major. I don't know, but that kind of at least that's the hints that I'm getting in from some of the, you know, Biden people. So I'm going to, you know, you know, see if I can trust them. Uh, and uh, and you of know, course, there's, you, yeah. they're somewhat locked in by what the the legislation is. I mean, there are there are requirements within the legislation that they obviously have to follow. But um, so, how much flexibility do they have have in those numbers? Well, in, in how some of the, in the writing of the rules and, and, and yeah. regulations and things like that, more on this up to two, you know, point three billion billion, I've been told they may even have found some more money. Uh, so that's interesting. And remember that $2.3 billion, a little over 90% went to uh, contract, uh, you know, poultry primarily and, and hog producers. That could be changed. And uh, really? Recall again what I keep on saying. Senator Stabenow, the new Senate Ag Committee chairwoman, has one of her former staffers in the Farm Service Agency. So that they there could be some, uh, you know, changes. Whether they're nuanced, or not, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure. But you know, uh, uh, and then you you have some more COVID. Uh, you know, this 1.9 trillion dollar package coming uh, that that I think is going to have to be whittled down a little bit to have any chance of getting through. But other than food aid and that equity aid for, you know, minority farmers, there won't be more CFAP like, you know, payments in that in that coming new COVID aid package. So let, let's bottom line here. Once Vilsack gets in, it may take a week or two in order to finalize some of these paused you know, programs, but uh, we we could see some changes uh, more in the $2.3 billion program than the one, you know, passed by Congress. And But that'll give us all signals of uh, if he stands pat, no changes, that, that'll be a signal for the future on potential other topics. So we're going to look into, uh, you know, what happens if any changes, John. 
Of course, you had some national newspapers over uh, the last couple of days writing stories about how the farm economy has recovered, how market prices have recovered, and is is that CFAP money needed? Obviously, you and I know that there are still some structural issues there uh, where that, that money is needed. Um, but it's this is going to a national debate um, that the secretary will be uh, subject to. Um, you couple that with one, uh, you know, if, if there's this perception that farm country doesn't need that money as much anymore, yet people uh, are still hungry. Um, and that's a, that's a place that's near and dear to Secretary Vilsack. You see money shifted towards hunger programs and away from some of those direct payments. Um, and also, do you see money going to the, the biofuels industry um, who has not seen any money coming their way out of any of these relief packages so far? I'm going to have to be proven for that the biofuel industry is going to you know, get any uh, you know, funding. I hope I'm wrong, but I, 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 I want to see them deliver on that one. As far as your food aid, uh, yes, there, there will be a definite tilt toward food aid, uh, more rather than less, perhaps a lot more. And as far as the ag sector, yeah, we're getting more than anecdotal evidence from different surveys and things like that. And just the numbers are coming out, but you don't chew through a cash flow uh, right. uh, pit in, in one year bull market. But I, 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 I'm reporting on Barron's uh, pointed out this morning, the, they said the farm industry is rallying. Here's six stocks to watch. And they, they primarily went to the crop input providers. And then we had equipment uh, you know, provider John Deere report this morning, good news for them. You know, the, it, it, the ag sector is coming up. And I learned my first year as a reporter Almost as John Deere goes, uh, they track farm income. And when the mm -hmm. farm income years are on the rise, which it was last year, uh, that's always good news for John Deere, and it was again. So, yes, I'll take this outlook, but we, we need several years of uh, prices at or above what we have right now. Now, any livestock listener is going to say, oh, wait a minute, it can't go too far too fast. I understand that. So that's why you need... Look at those additional uh, acres being planted. Uh, right. You know, we could be back into the soup if we, if we would have an open season, good weather, uh, record yields. You could be in a carryover problem sooner than what you think. This is how volatile the business of agriculture is, John. <laughs> Don't say those things, Jim. <laughs> it's true, though. I'm, it, it is true. We've it covered is true. it too many years. You can be feeling very good from a outlook perspective and poof you know we we've got that productive uh, might but i'd rather have production than not have it all right well back to the cfap issue you said that vilsack wants to put his stamp on it how long do you think that review process takes before we hear word um that that cfap 3 and the remaining money from cfap 1 and 2 is ready to be uh, to be sent out well, remember before a few weeks ago, uh, the Biden people were saying at, by the end of uh, uh, February into March. So that would be in March. Yeah. yeah, that would tend to hit the time frame. I just think it's going to take Vilsack. Vilsack is a doer. He he doesn't dawdle on on decisions that much, and and he'll consult with people he knows within the career people 
hopefully, who who he knows. And I think it'd just be a you know a couple of weeks probably. I think he'll get it going. It all depends on the uh, you know technical people of whether or not they're done with the reprogramming that it took to go to that twenty dollars and an acre, uh, John. That that's what I was told initially. Then they have to do the proposed regs but i think he could get it going what you know you know within a couple of weeks which would hit the end of february i think at the earliest all right roxanne asking did they use up all the cfap money from one and two that's what we were just talking about a little bit ago that 2.3 billion dollars um and jim says that could be even more um as they dig into the program that came from cfap one and two so that money is still on hold under this review process as well so yes. Um, hopefully a couple weeks into March, as Jim said, we will, we will learn what the future is uh, for that money. And if it gets diverted away from what was the priority that was set by the Trump administration, which was, uh, contract producers of, uh, well, mostly contract producers of hogs and poultry. There were a few other specialty crops, uh, in there as well, but 91%, yes. I think of the money 91. went to, yes. to the contract producers. So, yes. Absolutely. There you so go. we could we're going to view this as if they're tweaking it. If so, how much and what to? I think that'll that'll send some signals, John. All right. Well, that brings us down to the end where we talk about where we're watching for signal in the coming week. Uh, what are you watching, Jim? Well, I'm waiting for my second vaccine shot that I'm going to take March the 6th. My first one last Friday about this time went quite well. I'll give it to the, my state of Virginia. Uh, they they were very organized and we're, we continue to get good news that the, I took the Pfizer one and they're saying uh, that's 85% effective after the first shot within a couple of weeks, I think a week to, you know, you know 14 to 21 days. So uh, now I'm just waiting. As far as policy, uh, we're, we're going to have the Senate uh, do their immigration bill. We're, we're going to see if there's any uh, you know, significant differences in the in the ag, you know, sector components. Uh, we're going to have Vilsack uh, confirmed. And so he'll probably have a presser uh, that he'll detail uh, his six or eight, you, you, you know, priorities on that. As I mentioned on Thursday, we're going to have that hybrid hearing, the first one uh, for the climate change as it, as it impacts agriculture. Uh, agriculture and the uh, you know forestry in industry so I think that's going to be a big one and we're going to continue to monitor the uh, coming infrastructure package so these are big issues in a fast time John yes indeed and you'll be spending some time trolling around Virginians of new wheels did you get an EV I you know I didn't and I think that's significant. I had to drive three and a half hours to get the car I really wanted, a Hyundai oh, Santa Fe. But this speaks a lot to the combustible engine. I had a 2.0 turbo, you know, Santa Fe I love. It's the best valued car. If you want a smaller SUV, that's the one to get. I got a 2.5 turbo. It it has better gas mileage than my other one did. I mean, t tell me that. I mean, I love America, yeah. the you know progress, and or, or it, Korea as the case may be. Yes, uh, but it's built in Mississippi. It's built okay, in Mississippi. All right. Yes, I made sure of that, and it's got 277 horsepower, but the torque on it is 311. I mean, it makes me wow. go back. When I'm at a uh, intersection, it's just, the bells and whistles on this car is unbelievable. So I'm happy. I love cars, 
And this one, uh, you know, when I looked into the EV, I looked at Tesla and I looked at that. They are improving, but I have two neighbors who have Tesla, so I covet them. But both of them said they love them, but if anything goes wrong, you can't get it fixed right away. It takes a while. Uh, It's not good for me. I'm just anal when it comes involved (laughs) in having a car that can go the minute you need it. So I just don't think it's ready yet for people like me. And what we saw in the electric grid in Texas this week, just amplify that relative to what eventually will be a significant role for uh, electric vehicles. To me, it's not a question of if, it's when. May take longer. I think Chip Flory may be right after all. Don't tell him I said that. It may take longer to get <laughs> the comfort value, but the infrastructure ready. I can't get an EV at my local Hyundai dealership because they say the county electric grid is, isn't ready for it yet. So I, those are all important elements in there. But hmm. uh, that, that, I think that this is how I learn as I even purchase a, a, a new car. Uh, but I'll tell you, uh, each time I get a different car, the, the amazing things that they have on. There's even a button. I don't have any kids. But there's a button you can press if your kids aren't listening to you. Your, your voice comes on the speakers in the car. So they oh, can I hear need you. that. Isn't that interesting? I, I figured that. you would like that. Yeah, they call it child <laughs> speaker. They make sure that you can hear. And, and they, when they pointed that out to me, I chuckled. But there's things like that. And the safety features. I'm not a good driver. Uh, uh, and, and you turn your left signal or right signal, and a camera comes on in the dash so you can see the road right in the dash. And I Are you getting think, the commission on this, Jim? No, but I just love the car. I mean, it's got <laughs> ambient lighting. It's got heads up, full color. And, and for the but, first car since a Mercedes I had, the rear, now you're, they're on trucks, I know, but not on cars. The rear view uh, mirrors fold in when you yeah. shut the car off. Or if you're going into a DC parking lot that they park you like this. You can put a button and the and the mirrors fold in. That's all on the Santa Fe, on the top line Santa Fe. It's called calligraphy because the leather is just really nice in it. Uh, Jim, the, uh, this, despite all of that salesmanship there, <laughs> you bring up a good point, though, with the, the Texas electric grid this week and this push in Congress, uh, hopefully for some sort of infrastructure bill, I think that's a good illustration of, of where something is needed that I don't think a lot of people think about that infrastructure there. But think about how $1.9 trillion invested in that kind of infrastructure could have an impact on the security of the country and create thousands of jobs doing it. Yes, it it was the 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 Armageddon down in Texas. Whether Armageddon down in Texas was an inflection point, it was a learning curve. And I will applaud the governor by just saying it was uh, he'll take the blame. And so it's unlike uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, who runs away from uh, issues. <laughs> uh, he just he just took it on, upon himself. That shows you. And Texas also had a problem where they went a solo 
on on their electric grid and some right. other aspects. And they really didn't learn lessons in 2011 when a, a similar but not nearly a significant uh, issue flared up. So when you don't learn from mistakes, you know what ha happens. So yeah, I th just think this yellow yells out infrastructure, a potpourri approach to uh, energy policy, not one size fits all. So I think that's what we're we're learning. And of course, all the uh, all the ag related uh, items where where the livestock, the horrible situation under the livestock, the dairy producers had to do had to uh, dump milk again, et cetera, right. the water situation and, and all that. It's just uh, it, you magnify that uh, you know, story up there. It, you'll learn a lot. Indeed. All right, well, Jim, as always, great uh, insight, great conversation. Appreciate uh, Paul Bleiberg from Absolutely. National Milk Producers. Uh, some great insight there into the immigration policy. So, and we um, should offer of any association or lobby group if you if you want your story to be told, uh, give John a uh, an email, and you know, we'll have you on because we like to uh, you know you know get the signals out there and i've learned over my over 40 year career that lobbyists or analysts within the industry mm -hmm. they are the educators and we can learn a lot from them and paul was a good example of that Absolutely. yeah drop me an email at signal to noise at farmjournal.com that's all spelled out signal to noise at farmjournal.com we'd love to hear from you uh not only if you want to be on but also if you just have a question or comment for us Absolutely. drop us a note Again, a reminder, if you're listening to the podcast, you can join in live as we record every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central on the AgriTalk Facebook page. Uh, come and join and be a part of the conversation and ask us questions in real time as we're recording. And you get to see our lovely faces, too. What more could you want on a Friday afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this DC Signal to Noise. <laughs>